Herzlich Willkommen zum Modellansatz, der mathematische Podcast aus Karlsruhe mit Gudrun Täter und Sebastian Ritterbusch. Hallo Magda. Hallo. Um, it's kind of funny um, in the situation as a podcaster. I already had this a few times, but it's, it's still um, quite fascinating to meet someone for the first time and uh, to have a podcast conversation about a common interest. Because in the way, of course, one of my interests is to teach uh, students mathematics and to see how they grow in their field and make nice master theses and to do my own research, to work with colleagues on flow problems. But then with this podcast, it's also one of the things I like to do is to talk about what mathematicians are doing, what scientists are doing in their life. And so I was really stuck uh, with like a wonderful feeling to see that I'm not alone in this. Uh, when I found your page, Portrait in Science, where you also try to show the human in the science and the science in the human, not with a podcast, but with texts about colleagues and nice photographs. And um, you're working in Dresden, and I was already planning to go to Dresden, and so I reached out if you have the time to meet in order to have a conversation about your experiences with this type of work. So maybe a good start for you, part of the conversation, which was mine, is already quite long. As, um, what do you do uh, in your project with this portrait of science? Um, thank you very much. First of all, thank you very much for your invitation. I was very surprised by your inquiry, but uh, it's really nice to meet you and it's really nice to be here and record it. Um, portrait of science started um, primarily as a photography project for me. Uh, being a scientist and being really busy with my PhD thesis, I realized that I don't have as much time as I would like for my hobbies. And I basically decided to create a project to really make myself take pictures. And um, when I thought about the kind of project, the idea was honing in a little bit. I was sure that I want to make it about scientists. That would be actually also the easiest thing to do, <laughs> to just reach out to people with whom I work and who are around me. Um, but um, I was always inspired by the fact that science is actually a teamwork. A lot of people don't see it like this. Also with uh, prizes like Nobel Prizes where actually one person gets it, but actually people don't, like general public doesn't really realize that it's a teamwork and it's a team effort and there are so many people working on a single discovery mm -hmm. and yeah we still have the story that the genius yeah <laughs> yes. the genius um, very silently working for a few years and then there is this moment yeah exactly yeah and being inside you realize that there are people like facility scientists there are technicians there are master students who all contribute to scientific discoveries and who all have passion in them so naturally somehow i realized that that would be the story that i would like to tell 
that I would like to show the real portrait of science. So not only the biggest names in the fields, but actually also the smaller names or the people who normally would not be very well known, but who all have their passion and who all have something to share. Yeah, because in a way, um, as you um, already told us, uh, a different picture about science where uh, it's also easier maybe to see a place for yourself if you don't see yourself as a genius, which I think most people are <laughs> not thinking of themselves as geniuses, uh, that there is, of course, a lot of space for them in science. And um, I also think that somehow this idea that uh, in order to stay in science or to stay a little bit time in science in order to make that work you really have to be enthusiastic yes and uh, partially what this project did for me is also it took me a little bit out from a dark place so when i started it i was on the verge of the third year mm. of my PhD, which uh, maybe for a lot of people would <laughs> already indicate that it was the hardest part, <laughs> where things usually don't really work and you just have to push to figure things out and to finish. Um, and the project actually turned out to be a very good place to turn to when I had some problems or troubles and I didn't want to think so much about uh, the lab work and for an hour or so but also to hear the stories of other people and hear them saying that the most important thing is to just not concentrate on the failure or the most important thing is to just um, go on despite all the circumstances and wait for this one moment where something finally works. So that really gave me also the indication that um, just because things don't work for me, doesn't mean that I'm special and <laughs> I'm just not cut for it but it happened to everybody and this is how science is and um, I think this is one of the things that is not really so much uh, shared in science as well we actually have those geniuses and we have those people who get prizes and are celebrated let's say um, but uh, it actually is a little bit of a black box how do you get there And uh, I think people try and speak more about this, but I think sharing your own story and sharing your ups and downs and um, telling other people that there's always the light at the end of the tunnel if you just go on and you really uh, try to approach your problem from different directions, it's, it's a really powerful uh, message to, to young people. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> also, it's kind of a thing if you're um, stuck and you don't really have the luck to have a group where you get the support which you need in this moment, you wouldn't just go to any colleague and telling them, oh, everything is so harsh just now, oh, what would you advise me to do? Because <laughs> it feels not so good to do that, I would say, <laughs> at least not in my opinion. Yeah. <clears throat> But to say, you're doing interesting work, please t tell me something about it, and then as a sideline, so course it's not really sideline but you know it's not the beginning of the conversation yeah. you also get that um, there were situations in their life where you can learn something from exactly and um, uh, 
I actually was too shy to talk to people about this, so um, I did what I uh, thought I'm doing quite good. So I took pictures of people, but actually the interviews that go with the pictures were in the form of a questionnaire. So they were not face-to-face discussions, mm. but uh, people were able to just sit at their desk and fill them in initially as a PDF file, but later as a questionnaire online. And this was for two reasons. One <laughs> was because I was a little bit shy and I thought it's not really um, my thing to, to just interview people. I would actually do it differently these days. Um, but then the second thing was that it was hard enough to find 10 to 15 minutes to sit down with a person and, and take their picture, not to mention uh, going in and, and interviewing, which makes your effort even more <laughs> harder. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, for me, it's Uh, we always get this that this is such a, f a long format and people don't take the time to listen or people don't take the time to talk uh, but I think it's using the time so well because um, it's not like um, with professional formats where you have like two hours of conversation and then two minutes of that are used mm -hmm. in order to speak about one tiny part of the conversation which the professional part of the conversation thinks it's the most important yes. which very often the scientist doesn't agree about <laughs> so you spend two hours and then it's like two minutes in the world <clears throat> but in our case it's mostly that uh, almost all the conversation uh, can go out and um, has a lot of parts um, in which are helpful or interesting in a lot of yeah. different ways And so even if it's a longer format, I think it's one which uses the time which we have yeah. very well. Yeah, And I also started to think about the podcast as um, the hobby part of my work. <laughs> Because um, it's a possibility to reach out to people which I wouldn't otherwise dare to contact. Or it's also a possibility to have a different conversation with my students mm -hmm. in the end uh, where in a way it combines a little bit the, what they grew to learn during the master thesis and also in between the lines also to show what type of person they have become yeah? mm -hmm. which is a, a really interesting thing for me so because you know seeing them grow let's say over three years or something like that mm -hmm. um, that's so nice Yeah, if you see them grow and then you let to let them go. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think very often, I, I didn't really think about this very often, but uh, through these conversations, um, I'm much more aware of that fact that we are doing much more than just teaching them mathematics. Mm. <laughs> no, I have to admit that um, after... Uh, interviewing via the questionnaire a lot of people I sometimes felt that I would actually like to sit down and have some follow-up questions but somehow my time. formula did not really include the time for that yeah, yeah. but I think um, that's not so, so bad to, to try to stick with some uh, format if it helps you um, personally to start mm. I would say because yes. that's always one thinks about one could do this and that and then If I have the time, then of course no. There's no no point in time where you have time. As a side, because sometimes you also need just time to recover. Yes, yes. 
Um, but you, you need different types of recovering. This is what I'm kind of in between your lines that, of course, you have to eat and sleep and sometimes take a vacation, but also inside work, sometimes you have to take a step back yeah. and um, kind of look slightly differently at it. And the easiest way to do that is in a conversation with someone who is not at your position, but near enough. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I maybe concentrate a little bit on, on what the project did to me, <laughs> but apart from uh, from getting other people's uh, stories and, and views on their academic career, it also made me realize that I'm actually really enjoying uh, faster results in my work. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I think everybody in science knows that sometimes you really have to have multi-year projects and uh, it can be quite frustrating to basically work on something for three or four years without knowing how this goes. And uh, particularly for that reason, going into a photography project and actually taking pictures every week or every two weeks was very interesting because I actually had something tangible to hold on to to see some progress on this side and then I could actually focus and, and work on the stuff where I didn't see the tangible products <laughs> right away uh, with also more motivation so it was like um, another escape basically mm. but escape sounds so <laughs> dramatic like so yeah. <laughs> yeah, dramatic and almost forbidden uh, no, if you're no. in your PG but it's uh, but it really helped yeah, yeah yeah it helps just you know because sometimes um Since there is a point, uh, I would say the point very often comes already during PhD where you see that uh, no matter what you try to organize yourself perfectly and doing everything perfectly, there is not enough time to do everything you should do. Mm -hmm. And then you have to start to prioritize and things like that. And um, for quite a time, you still try to kind of make all the topics on your to-do list as good as possible and take away time from your recovery time, which you also need. And um, then the question is, when do you feel that it's not more working that way? <laughs> and um, that you learn that it's impossible. And yeah. uh, it's, for everybody, it's the same. It's just impossible. And then, of course, one could say we should maybe change our work in science but we can't do this personally. <laughs> yeah. So somehow we have to find our ways to work with that. And also, um, sci like scientific community is such a mixture of different uh, individuals and with different characters and personalities, and there is no one uh, format of work. Like Everybody has to just figure it out for themselves, That's right? True, yes. but, but I think it's kind of both. Though somehow things are the same, Uh, on a certain level, but for everybody, it gets through some personal filter. Mm. As you have both, yeah. And it, there's always this danger that you only see yourself as the failure, because very often other people don't speak about their problems; they only speak about the good things. <laughs> so they kind of speak only if they can blame someone else. <laughs> yeah. um, Of course, my, my main idea to have this conversation was um, to have this exchange of ideas. Um, what were your intentions 
in speaking about people and science and what are your experiences with it. Um, but on the other hand, um, I'm more on the kind of engineering mathematical side. Mm -hmm. um, you are more on the medical, biological, sciencey side. So there are kind of a few differences, I would say. So um, could you maybe explain a little bit what was uh, the topic of your PhD? Um, yes. Um, I actually uh, studied uh, biotechnology originally, so I have a master's in biotechnology, but I decided to do a PhD in molecular biology, mm -hmm. so go a little bit more into the basic science part. And um, particularly... Uh, My research was focused on proteins and their modification. So what still I find quite uh, baffling and interesting is uh, that we have the genes, of course. They are amazing. And uh, as everybody knows, genes code for proteins. Um, but there is a lot that is going on there. So we have far more proteins than we have genes. And this is due to many different mechanisms. But then even out of those proteins, they actually exist in many different forms with many different functions. So one protein can be modified, actually, after it's created by multiple different smaller proteins or groups. And this can change its location within the cell. This can change its affinity towards it in interacting proteins, or it can actually degrade it or um, relocate it or give it another function, basically, or change uh, the structure. So this creates... Um, uh, a very interesting opportunity to actually describe proteins that have been known to actually uh, behave in a very strange way, to actually have a lot of different uh, functions and uh, explain how this can happen. And particularly my, my thesis focused on one of the proteins that is uh, known as a structural one. It builds uh, the nucleus of the cells, the inner part. But actually, throughout the years, we've been realizing that it actually acts as an interaction hub, and it has a lot more functions than just a structural part. And uh, one of the hypotheses of my thesis was that this can be due to a post-translational modifications that are very heavy, uh, and uh, this, this protein is one of the most post-translationally modified proteins in our organism. So um, it was a quite challenging work, um, but we've been able to, to actually uh, show that maybe something happens during mitosis, so during the cell division, and the post-translation modifications there influence how this protein works. Mm. Yeah, the thing is, if we are speaking about biotechnology, of course... Um, in our head or the story around it is that it brings biology and medicine very near to the technology which we know from building cars and building machines and things like that and so it sounds like it's easy to handle or mm -hmm. it's possible to handle yes. yeah, in the sense but I would say it's more like we intend to handle it like machines <laughs> But in the future, after we understood basic things, which 
about um, metals and other materials we understood 100 years ago. Mm. Yeah. And that's why we can now work with them so easily, even if we are still working on new materials all the time. Yeah. But um, this ba is based on work which was done a long time ago. And uh, with, with, I would say, your field of research, in the sense that it's not really mine, uh, I think uh, we can only do this kind of work with the good microscopes and the good computers, which we only have available like, like 15 years or 20 years. Yes, like my work was actually made um, possible due to advances in mass spectrometry, because uh, this really allowed to see... Uh, the different modifications on the proteins and we've realized how many proteins are actually modified and exist in many different forms and now we are able to actually see see those modifications and ask what do they actually do in the, inside the cells so this is really a growing field mm. due to technological advance yeah 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 i'm kind of ob observing in which direction we apply mathematics And um, we have these uh, traditional technical universities in Germany, so the big nine, yeah. uh, where the tradition is very much a tradition which comes from mechanical engineering and electrical engineering. And um, there are people who are doing uh, building buildings and things like that, but reaching out really to include uh, everything which is biological and medicine, it's really hard for these universities because... Somehow, it's not scientific enough for them, yeah. Because it's not like you have like a conservation law where you know you're standing there, and uh, then you can kind of draw some consequences of what kind of behavior you have to expect. It's more like um, you're still working on on the basic concepts, yeah. So like, but there are of course a lot of surprises if you think of their protein as being something which you know is just the one thing, mm. and then you have find out it's it's just changing. Yeah, and, and uh, it's not just changing from one to another, but from one to many possibilities. Yes, exactly. So and and those changes depend on the interactions with different proteins. So these also depend on uh, the stage the cell itself is in, whether it's dividing or maybe it's multiplying mm. its genome right now. So. I think biology is so complex because the um, the cell can exist in so many stages and also every cell is a little bit different in our organism. And what we also, the discoveries that we make in the Petri dish does not always exactly uh, translate to a human organism, which is even more complex, right? So I think even though we've been doing a lot of really cool stuff <laughs> in the past 50 years in biology, to some extent we're still taking very baby steps, I think. Yeah. And then the reason behind um, me kind of um, giving you a bad name here, <laughs> because in the sense that uh, the established um, sciences, engineering sciences, they are so powerful in Germany and you're just moving into this field. Um, my idea behind that question was more like um, even our engineering colleagues sometimes have the feeling that they have to fight for being understood mm -hmm. uh, in the public in the by everyday people or by um, school children um, a few of them of course like to build things and they kind of grow into this engineering habit but they would like to have many more people because there are so many things to be done 
And so they already have this feeling that they are not really understood mm -hmm. and have to learn how to communicate. But I think in your field, <laughs> to speak about this even, yes, and not to speak about it as something where in the end the people have only the feeling that it's just a um, mystical place <laughs> where, you know, you don't do what you do, know what you're doing and it's not clear where it's going and there is no safe ground, things like that. Um, I think one of the... I don't want to say problems, but it's kind of an additional topic also to be able to speak about it in a way that people can see where we are, where we can go safely, and what's kind of on the horizon of that. Yes, yes. Um, I, I have to say that uh, people are aware of this more and more, and... Um, I've been part of a, of a big, one of the biggest PhD programs actually in Germany in, in biological sciences. And I have to say that in our PhD program, a lot of people were starting from the very beginning of their projects to really find ways that they can describe their project uh, with maybe some metaphors or really try to find connections that can actually make them speak more clearly to, to the outside world. But um, this, of course, is very <laughs> very troubling because we are talking very often about things that we can't see and also about the phenomena that are so microscopic that, that are actually really hard to describe. And um, it's always easier to just say, that, yeah, we're trying to cure cancer. <laughs> Than, than to describe something from maybe uh, the developmental biology, which is very abstract to, to people. Uh, during my master's work, I've actually had the chance to go for research placement in the U.S., and I had the chance to work in a developmental biology laboratory, and to this day I did not find <laughs> a very good way to describe even to my parents what was the rationale behind my work there. <laughs> where we studied basically the organization of, um, of hair on the fruit fly wing, which is very important for even human development, but it is very abstract thing. Mm -hmm. So I still think that molecular biology is somewhere in between because there are many connections to different diseases that you can always find, but also uh, people know about genes and proteins and, and stuff, so you... It's, it's, there are also parts of biology that are even harder to describe. Yeah, yeah the thing is, um, with engineering, very often people are fascinated by uh, the stars and um, people going to the moon and uh, flying with the rocket, things like that. And um, this can be an entrance to engineering. Mm -hmm. And in your field, I would think that, um, of course, the people are fascinated by illnesses or by finding possibilities to stay healthy yeah. or to organize our uh, surroundings in a way that um, people are not so prone to health risks, things like that. And I think um, if you say we are <laughs> try to cure cancer, this kind of takes advantage of that. Yes, a cancer is some illness which everybody met somehow over time. Yes. There is someone who died of cancer or who was ill and was cured because... Yes, you know, in two and three years' time, things already improve. Yeah, but I think uh, working with these um, tiny, tiny. <laughs> also, 
I don't really have an idea how many people have to contribute to something like a PhD thesis. In because, biology? Yeah, because um, do you do all the experiments then yourself? Or <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, this is, uh, I think historically it was like this, that you were doing everything yourself, mm. but we are moving into a new era and also with uh, technology moving forward there are now projects that are un you are simply unable to learn everything on your own there are projects and i think vast majority of people do a project like this that they are the sole researcher so they have some research focus from their principal investigator but they actually do all the pipetting and and experiments and and uh, follow ups themselves But actually, the Dresden model is uh, that we have a lot of facilities. So we outsource a lot of work that will normally take a lot to optimize to a facility that is specialized in purifying proteins or cloning genes uh, and doing stuff like this. Um, so this streamlines, uh, streamlines the project uh, a little bit. And also, like generally speaking in biology, uh, big data is also a big Uh, thing I think in all sciences right right now, and this of course also creates uh, multidisciplinary and multi um, multi group projects where uh, simply different groups collaborate and different groups actually um, uh, gather the data and different groups specialize in actually getting the message out of the data. Mm. So these are all the changes that are happening right now, and maybe we will move away from a sole researcher on a project kind of PhD. Mm. And because in a way, if you are doing this uh, work, which is really kind of very specialized, handy work, uh, there's always this time which you need in order to be kind of the, on the standard level that you yes. can trust your own results. And then, of course, there will be this one special thing which not everybody is doing, but just one you or the other person with his topic or her topic is doing. Uh, then uh, it might not be necessary that everybody learns this, but just for this experiment it's necessary. But um, if you have like a standardized surroundings which they, where they are always making the same things in a standardized way, then I think this is a good way. Yes, and uh, we have a reproducibility uh, yeah. problem in biology, and uh, this kind of streamlined facility uh, kind of approach can actually maybe also help to solve it. Mm -hmm. But this brings us back to the idea behind the project that more and more often you realize that, um, well, it's the PI who has ideas and has the the vision of the lab and very often is also giving you the vision and direction for the particular project. It's the PhD or postdoc who actually uh, really focuses on the work and makes it their own. But even those people work with facility uh, technicians, work with technicians in the lab, and also have students of their own uh, contributing to their project. So in the end, even though it's you feel like it's your project, you had multiple people working on it. And, and that's why um, science nowadays is never a sole effort. You are not an isolated person somewhere in the basement who spends their days without the sun thinking about um, scientific progress, but it's actually really a team effort. Yes, and um, in a way this can only work if you can trust each other, yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, there's also a slight difference in the culture which I observed, but which might not be might be that just my my way to talk with people is that very often in the research which is related to engineering, if you're on the threshold of doing something which really needs to leads to new machines and things like that. Uh, then publishing this is always very much protected. So you have to really buy the scientific papers. Of course, if you're working at university, usually your university does it for you. But it's always behind a paywall what mm -hmm. you're doing, which is <laughs> not easy to explain other than it has been developed that way and now it's like that and we can't change it from today to tomorrow. And uh, with mathematicians which are working more on this biological and medicinal side, which is more, uh, it's newer. Uh, this was from the very beginning often subsidized with money where from the very beginning it was clear what they find should be public. Mm -hmm. Is this also uh, in the field here? So in biology, the change is also happening right now, I think. Um, Originally, it, it it was how you described it. So people were interested in publishing in the highest possible journals with yeah. the highest impact factor, which are actually still behind the paywall. Um, however, more and more people are actually thinking about that and thinking about giving back to the community. And uh, there are journals which specifically um, are uh, are just popping up and and being open open access. But also uh, what is happening in biology, uh, we went in the direction that I think uh, physics started and I think partially mathematics as well, which is the archive mm -hmm. and just putting your work out there without actually having to publish it in a journal. And biology is now using um, bioarchive as, as a hub for sharing the papers. Yeah, also because sometimes it just takes too long. But until it's, something is uh, yeah. published and so it's but it's a change happening yeah. and, and still a lot of groups are not doing that and also I think the how 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 science funding generally works uh, right now it's impossible not to publish in the in the normal journals mm. and just put your work out there mm. it's a, it's such a change of culture yeah which somehow has to also come from the um, sources which fund yes otherwise we can't be top-down yeah, approach top down. Um, what was your reason to apply for the position here in Dresden um, as I already mentioned when I was doing my master's I had this opportunity to actually go for a research placement in the US and um, I was at the University of Virginia And I really enjoyed it. It was the first time I was actually among real scientists and I was part of the community. I was attending seminars, going for lunches with different people and, and talking a lot to people who are in science for ages. And I've realized that I actually, well, I fit in, <laughs> I like it, and it seems like an interesting bunch of people to hang around with. <laughs> So uh, that made me pretty sure that I actually want to stay in science and I want to basically find a project of my own and go on to do a PhD. But uh, being in the U.S. also was a compromise because I actually uh, couldn't really live uh, outside Europe for that long because of family reasons. And uh, therefore I decided to actually move back to 
Europe and find a position here. And uh, Dresden is uh, also a very known place on the biology map of Europe. Um, there is a very well-known PhD program here, and uh, which combines uh, efforts of the technical university here and also Max Planck Institute and a couple of smaller institutes. And uh, it's at the time it was really easy to just apply to one program and then have all the groups together to choose from and decide where you go. And uh, generally the, the research level and, and quality is really, really good and there are a lot of people who are doing really top work. So, yeah, it really spoke to me as a, as a nice place to come. Mm. Is this a graduate program where you also have to attend lectures and do a few exams during your PhD? Uh, no, no <laughs> I actually it's think it's yeah. it's not. It's it's actually just uh, we have, I think, three or two weeks of kind of like onboarding, I think. But uh, it's been a while, and I think also like when I started, that was six years ago. Uh, the program was a little bit different, and there were lots of changes in between. So I cannot speak about mm. how is it now. But I think we had a onboarding, and we had one week uh, course on how to write scientific papers from a more like um, approach, uh, more like how to approach writing and not really write with in the sense of vocabulary and, mm. and grammar. So yeah. it's also kind of a different. There are different cultures. Very often in mathematics, it's still that uh, if you are a PhD student, you are learning by doing. So you just observe mm. how other people do, people do their research, and you uh, speak to your um, the person who's doing. It gave you the topic and things like that. And um, with the engineers, it's often that if they have these graduate programs, they ask the students to learn certain things during their mm -hmm. PhD. And um, we have this existing both, uh, for example, in Karlsruhe. Okay. Yeah. And of course, um, depending on what you want to achieve, for example, now, for example, you're working in a graduate program where we want to make batteries better. Mm -hmm. And there we have electrical engineers, chemical engineers, material scientists, and mathematicians. And so everybody knows a few things but needs other things. Mm -hmm. And so we organize study days okay. where one group explains the other ones kind of very specifically. It's mm -hmm. not like a lecture which yes. would be for students, but a lecture for just this PhD group. And this proved to be really good mm -hmm. on a lot of levels. So they learn a lot, they meet they start to discuss and so it's quite a good thing so kind of in, in between yes yeah. you are um, originally from Poland Poland yeah that's kind of from your second name it looks like <laughs> yes being. just next door yeah uh, so you studied in Poland as well or yes yeah. I, I had a chance to actually attend this very unique uh, faculty Uh, where we studied in English as well, and this opened a lot of doors for me uh, to to go on the Erasmus exchange, to go on this research placement, and also later to um, to really easily find a position outside of Poland. Mm. Yeah. On the other hand, I have this feeling that with my Polish colleagues, they are all over the world. <laughs> so originally from Poland, and you meet them wherever you go. Yes, yes, that's true. We are yeah. everywhere. 
<laughs> oh, it's kind of a good thing. Yes, because you bring good cooking and nice culture <laughs> to wherever you go. I would say. Um, if you are uh, studied in Poland and are from Poland, and you spent quite a while working in the States, and now you are here in Germany, um, are there uh, cultural differences in your work or in your everyday life? which you observed or is it kind of you know we are all doing science and yeah, wherever <laughs> I think scientists are kind of like unique tribe which is a little bit living above any culture and um, yes now being for a little bit over well almost a year outside of science actually I've realized that um, I've been living here in Germany for six years but I've actually did not even know that much about German culture and German habits and, and traditions. So I have to say that uh, whether it was in the States or whether it was here in Germany, I was always part of very international groups and uh, working with people who, uh, even if they were coming from Germany, they were also coming from international groups or being before in different places and it was always a little bit uh, like just really hanging out with scientists and, and not really uh, thinking too much about the habits and traditions and so on but um, yeah I really think it's a, it's a specific tribe that is just super international and above cultures yeah. Yeah. yeah but that's kind of a good thing yeah I would say if this exists in Germany that you have um, a real international island where you feel welcome absolutely because you can contribute scientifically because um, a few years ago we had this uh, terrible thing happening here in Dresden that one of the scientists there was just um, murdered in mm. court and yeah, it's kind was, of unbelievable uh, wife of a scientist yeah. I yeah. think yes and so on. It's the feeling that um, you are not welcome in, in Dresden is kind of connected to this terrible thing happening yes I mean uh, I cannot speak for everyone yeah of course <laughs> that's the same but uh, I've, I've always felt very welcome here mm. yeah of course you can also say Dresden is not so far away from Poland yes yes and <laughs> at least if you are in Karlsruhe you feel that it's already almost Poland here Yeah, and generally speaking, I think Europe is also yeah. pretty uh, pretty uniform in, in the culture, even though a lot of people would probably disagree. But I think, relatively speaking, Europeans are quite quite the same. Yeah. yeah. What I found a little bit interesting, when I went to the States, my, my of course, the, the feeling is that you, the things which you've seen on television before, um, in the American movies then you see they are really like that <laughs> beforehand I was always thinking that's just movies but it's really like yes. that and when I returned home and I tried to speak about these experiences only then I found that somehow I didn't really interact with anybody American mm. so there was just one person in the group who was originally American everybody else was coming from wherever a lot of Europeans yeah. a few Asians which all worked there because they were interested in the topic and had faculty positions and things like that. So in Germany, I had never seen that. So we were mostly Germans, more or less, mm -hmm. with a few um, coming from for a short time to, to work with us. And so that they really have this international 
uh, faculty was mm -hmm. something new to me. No, Dresden, I think I, I can. I don't know other places, mm, yeah, but yeah. Dresden <laughs> is very, very international, uh, very international. Yeah. and and also it might depend on on the institute. But um, biotech, where I worked, is pretty international, and also Max Planck Institute is as well. Mm. So when you finish your PhD, of course, you have uh, the PhD. <laughs> <laughs> But um, what uh, things did you take away where you think um, that this time was well spent? Or what is kind of the... Because I, I would ex expecting if you don't stay in academia that the, the precise research topic is no more that near to your heart because someone else has to take it up and carry it on. But um, I would expect that um, you don't see this as a waste of time. And, you know, working now is somewhere else. You only can understand what type of things you learned during your PhD time is now helpful for your work. Well, there are plenty of things. Uh, communication is one of them so um, meeting with a lot of people being uh, forced or basically uh, having to talk about your project listening to other people's project projects uh, really taught me how to quickly change gears and basically think about things on a more maybe superficial level to find uh, maybe um, interesting topics everywhere um, but also I think what um, what I always somehow felt that I have was this curiosity to learn things but actually during my PhD I've really realized that this is my superpower <laughs> that actually um, uh, in grad school you really have to sit down and learn something whether it's a technique or a new method or some new angle and you just sit down you you spend one day with the papers and then you maybe you're maybe not an expert but you're quite close to it and this is probably one of the superpowers that i got from my phd um and the other thing um um would be uh, all of the small skills like really juggling so in biology nothing really goes linearly you're always juggling multiple angles and you're asking multiple questions and you have like sub projects within your project and this requires also a lot of management even though a lot of people wouldn't even realize this is a project or time management but it actually sort of is um, and uh, Uh, yeah, I think above all things, uh, it's also resilience. That, uh, as I mentioned uh, before, uh, any kind of PhD or, or generally scientific project, on average, it usually doesn't work. <laughs> and you have to uh, basically learn how to deal with that and... Uh, And try your best to to basically be flexible, be f be agile, and change things, and and uh, kind of think outside the box, and maybe schedule even times where you just sit down and think about things and try to figure it out from a different angle, so that you just approach it differently the other day, but again with smile and without tears in your eyes, right? So. Um, It, it, it sounds a little bit, uh, on one hand, very obvious, uh, but on the other hand, it's, it's also applicable to everything in your life. 
because if you can just uh, face uh, failures as something that just happens and then you just go on, I think it's a very nice uh, skill for everything in your life. Mm. Yeah, also you need to overcome because you have to take the next step, but also to have the possibility to learn something yes. from, from what went wrong. Yes, from every So this like self-reflection is, mm -hmm. is actually very important. I mean, sometimes it's more reflecting on the project itself, but sometimes it's also what you personally did wrong. And, and this is also very useful. Mm. So um, is there still this enthusiasm? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, I mean, one of I, I don't actually... Um, uh, so I, I sometimes still interview scientists myself, but... Uh, Uh, basically, what I'm interested also as a hobby is to listen to podcasts with scientists <laughs> and to listen to their uh, to their career story and how did it go for them and what was the turning point, how long did it, did it didn't work, and then what was the turning point when it started to work and so on. It's still very uh, exciting for me. Yeah, yeah, because in a way. Um You were referring to the fact that we are all kind of the same nerds. Exactly. Uh, there are comparable things, but then there are these stories where things get personal and um, kind of even more interesting what's all possible and what coexists. And uh, the cool thing is that you can listen to a story of a person who comes from Australia and finishes his PhD in the US and then moves to the other part of the world and it still seems like something that you can relate to. So uh, I think this was also um, part of the portrait of science where no matter whether it was a technician or a PhD student or a postdoc or a professor emeritus, Like somehow the things that were said in the interviews were always something that everybody could relate to more or less from and then see those little pieces in their own life. Mm. And also, for example, I found um, this portrait through a colleague from Karlsruhe who was working there in biotechnology in our so-called Campus Nord, mm -hmm. so the research facility which joined the university or I think they think of them joining them <laughs> us joining them yes but um, who I want to talk to about his things and he gave this as if you want to know more about me just read this portrait which Magda did and I was like oh, that's interesting I've never seen something like that and of course uh, in his story there's also this fact that he found his passion which he's following just kind of by accident Yes, yeah. yes. And um, one wouldn't believe that. Uh, <laughs> and when you listen to people, it's very often kind of funny accidents. Uh, yes, that's true. And what also is very often happening is that people mention specific books or um, they mention meeting a person who became their mentor. Mm. And uh, this also speaks a little bit to... Uh, well, I mean, if you want to be a little bit more uh, metaphysical to a fate mm. <laughs> or or the, just the chance of events sometimes in, in your life because uh, I think one of the persons um, mentioned that uh, what sparked the inner scientist in her was getting a book about interesting things in the world as a kid and this basically gave her the idea that there are so many things that are unknown and so many things that are actually... Uh, 
super cool in the world and they were found by scientists so she can became one as well or um, people having mentors who are basically so such a such inspiring people that they just wanted to be like them and they wanted to also become scientists so um, it's sometimes really uh, surprising what the story behind someone is but um but it's definitely interesting to hear it. Mm. Yeah, also if I'm saying that was a pure um, chance, it's of course just half of the truth because um, the moment when the chance occurs, you have to be open for it. Yes. And I think this is one thing which we as scientists have to have as ability to always be open for possibilities, yeah, to, to see... Um, in the right way at things, giving them a chance to be our chance. Yeah. Yes, yes. And not just to walk our well-made path, because yes, that's the, the way you do it. <laughs> and uh, and also, like you, you mentioned, uh, interacting with other people. Like yeah. I also know about a lot of projects uh, within our campus that sparked uh, from discussions over a beer during beer hour where somebody just said that he has a problem with this or that. Two people came in with their ideas and then it ended up being a paper about a technical issue, for example. Mm. So... Yeah. So this is uh, one of the things which one doesn't really, um, I think, which you don't expect when you enter science that a lot of things are just, you know, you meet someone over a coffee or over a beer and start to talk and then things can develop from there. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, also that um, you can really start to talk about uh, your problems and not thinking that you are the only person who is responsible for solving them and so you should just shut up and not put them in the others um, because there's always this chance that someone has this this one idea which helps you. Yes, but um, I still think that this should be put a little bit more out there mm. and this is maybe something that we as a community could do a little bit better because I'm actually aware of a lot of friends and friends of friends who are actually struggling a lot with their projects and mm. very often the struggle becomes really physical and uh, sometimes it's really uh, spinning out of things that probably shouldn't even matter so much but they are just unable to voice it and talk to anybody or people are not listening and um, I remember reading a a paper or an article general about um, a scientist who was working somewhere in the US and he set up this kind of seminar where faculty members would actually come and talk about their biggest failures <laughs> yeah. and, and would just share it as, a, as an outreach to basically show the young students who are very motivated and very ambitious that it doesn't always work and um, and I think still, like, these kind of things are happening and people are more and more open to talk. But this kind of uh, discussion about what is going on behind the stages uh, should probably take place more often. Mm. Yeah, that's also when people are asking me why we are doing the podcast and what's kind of comparable to a usual um, publication and what's more in there than one of the things I mentioned that of course, if you meet the person and in meeting the person, you also meet things which didn't work 
which mm. you've never put in a paper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which, you know, I think is not good. So sometimes you should ha even have papers where you write, this doesn't work because, yeah, because yeah. then someone else don't, doesn't have to try it. Yes, yes, and I, I would actually be really interested in uh, in a statistic about this, like yeah. how many groups are actually working on the stuff that other groups already know don't work, but yeah. simply do not have the place to share this knowledge. Mm. So, um, what will be the next steps for you? I'm quite happy here in Dresden, staying here. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm quite happy. Um, also through the project, I've realized that... Um, creative part of me is very interesting and, and maybe deserves a little bit more attention and after my PhD I decided to move away from science and I, I work now for a company developing um, e-learning solutions for pharmaceutical companies so I'm pretty much designing the content and also blueprint for infographics and flowcharts that go into those uh, very actually uh, pleasing and, and design-friendly uh, e-learning solutions. And I have to say that uh, it's really interesting because it, um, it still keeps my curiosity um, uh, satisfied. So I, I learn about a lot of different diseases and a lot of different products. Um, but at the same time, I create something tangible <laughs> And um, doesn't take three years. And it doesn't take three or four years. Yes, yeah. yes. But um, I, I also we have this part a little bit in my work. If we teach students and try to understand how we teach them best, and so um, of course first you have uh, we talk about it uh, about different experiences. But then there's of course also research. We we are still in the beginning steps to understand how we learn <laughs> yes well, we don't understand so much about it i would say and um also you know presenting things graphically mm. even if you're just writing on the blackboard yeah um it's such a it's such a wide field yeah, yeah. And uh, this is also something that during my PhD I really became interested in because mm. uh, while I was always this kind of creative person, I, I didn't really have the talent to draw, but somehow making figures, playing around with colors, maybe layout and so on, I, I wouldn't say I was a master of it, but it really felt good and people were pretty pleased looking at my presentation so um, during my PhD I, uh, inside our group for example I was the contact person before somebody <laughs> had to present or something I, I mm. was always uh, offering them advice and people were actually quite happy with it um, I also had some seminars during my PhD for like a broader audience within the PhD program to teach the, the others how maybe um, we can do it better <laughs> because uh, I think I mean it's not a huge problem because I think curiosity and and being interested in other people's research is still the driving force and people will sit and listen to every talk um, equally but the thing is how how um, how uh, efficient the communication is and I think this is something that scientists can also work on and become more efficient in that because really some of the seminars uh, are kind of a pain to sit in <laughs> for the whole hour and, and still there are people who are making a very good job at uh, trying to visualize their work 
uh, trying to visualize very abstract concepts and really making it spot on and being able to communicate it very well to a broader audience. Mm. Yeah, that's also kind of interesting if you, for example, leave the country and have to navigate in slightly different things. So like um, the, in German, you have this highway is always blue and then yes. you go to, um, to France and then it's green. And so you have to slightly adapt it. But then you see how useful it is if you have like some guiding scheme where you don't really think about these things. Yes. yes. And um, I think in, in this um, slightly a metaphor for um, how you present something visually in a way that it helps to follow what you're explaining yeah but uh, what you just mentioned is actually a big challenge uh, uh, for companies like ours but also for scientists because uh, whenever you're creating something for an audience that is international you have to get away from those connotations yeah. and being from Europe or being from a specific country can actually you, you can be unaware of the fact that the way you bring together some ideas is not exactly the way someone from Sri Lanka or from Brazil would actually also put it together. Yeah, so. starting from that we read from up, down and left yes, to right. for and example. Then, yeah, and see this as the normal way to communicate on so any sheet. Yeah. This is a very dramatic example, yeah. but the others are colors, for yeah. example, and, and the use of, of colors in the presentations, which also has, uh, like colors have very cultural and sometimes historical meanings that people don't realize uh, may vary quite drastically between different countries. Mm. And then you have always this moment when you're um, on the computer, everything looked fine, then you put it on the beamer and the color looks just can't really see it anymore. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah, that's kind of a technical thing that you can only prevent if you test it before. Yeah. Of course, which you should always do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, also, I'm always a little bit if, um, angry if I feel people are not um, behaving responsible for that. So, for example, um, oh, with cold and warm water, you have that everywhere. And there should be, like, right is cold, left is cold. That's kind of a rule. And if there's some person just doesn't take, you know, just by chance and the other way around, it's so bad. <laughs> Yeah. It should be uh, the pride of the person doing that job to always make this right. But that is also uh, problematic for the communication, actually, yeah. because this takes away your attention and you start thinking about this particular thing and wondering why is this not the way it should be yeah. instead of really following the yeah. story. Yeah, so. things like that, yeah. Also, if you have, like, uh, you can close uh, the door in the toilet... Mm -hmm. And then it should be from the left to the right, just like, you know, it's it's barred. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, you know, can't really rely on that. <laughs> and then I'm always kind of trying if I did it right. So because you can't just look at it if it's mm -hmm. if it's closed or not. Things like that make me crazy. <laughs> They should behave like scientists. They care for these things. <laughs> okay. Um, so... Will you um, put more um, portraits online? 
Um, I did not shut down mm -hmm. the project. It's, uh, it's it would be, of course, the, the portraits which there are yeah. should stay at least for a while. And uh, I was briefly thinking about moving to a slightly different uh, form mm -hmm. format uh, because, I mean, the stills uh, photography is really making me happy, but uh, um, I was trying to, like, the project itself was a challenge for me. Uh, because I was using a new technique for me in photography and yeah. and at some point I realized that okay, like this is already set, I can do that, uh, then maybe I should actually try to challenge myself again and I was briefly thinking about uh, video interviews uh, but these are actually quite uh, um, laborious to make, so you have to really think about the lighting you have to really think about like you have to put time and effort both into production but also post-production and right now with uh, a new job I, I can't really focus on that um, I was thinking though about making more interviews but I was wondering um, how could I maybe do it while traveling so maybe reaching out to scientists from the places mm. where I travel yeah. and, and expanding a little bit from Dresden but uh, yeah Uh, right now, it's it's a transition period, and and I'm not sure if if it will continue or not. I miss it a little bit because it's always a great chance to to meet very interesting individuals and to hear their stories. And also, somehow, um, it's uh, because we're taking pictures, people are taken a, li a little bit outside of their comfort zone, and you have the chance to see the person that you've seen in the seminar or you've seen in a very professional setting in a slightly different place and a little bit outside of their comfort zone and behaving just like a regular person. So that, that was always also exciting. Mm. Also without apron. <laughs> in your case, which we don't really have. So when I went to school, there were a few teachers which had aprons because if you use chalk, then there's mm -hmm. always the danger that you you have dark material. Mm -hmm. yeah, but mathematics is not done in aprons. Well, I mean, I, if you won't tell anyone, <laughs> then I can tell you that we don't wear lab coats as much as we should. <laughs> So the picture is not correct in my head, I see. Well, it's still an artistic vision. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for accepting my invitation for this conversation. What's thank you for having really interesting me. For me. And I hope that you find the right solution for you, because you. then we benefit all from that. <laughs> thank you.